0: As a general rule, I see a shifting towards realizing the importance of deepening personal relationships with our people from the leaders I come across with, but there's still a long way to go.
1: Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, folks. It is RJ Singh here, and so very grateful that you're spending another hour or so with us at Ultra Habits. Today, we have a very special guest. All our guests are special, but I am extremely happy to get this guest on the show because he hails from my alma mater, the UNSW Australian Graduate School of Management, where we both shared an executive MBA. He did his some time ago, mine more recent. Nevertheless, always. Great to connect with alumni. Now, this week we're going to have yours Koenig on the show. That's a Swiss name. Now, yours has been around the traps. He actually lives in Seattle now. He's originally from Switzerland and he's lived all over the shop. Now, yours is an award winning keynote speaker, as well as an executive coach, champion, ultra endurance athlete, military peacekeeping commander, and professor. Check out the range on that. He has more than 20 years of experience helping leaders and teams at all levels rethink, reimagine, and improve their approach to peak performance, driving business results. Yours keynote speeches help leaders shift from what worked back then to what we need to do now. And that's what his framework is centered around. What made us successful in the past? Sure, elements of that may still be relevant. but. Things have changed, times have changed, and what worked then is not necessarily gonna be what works for us now. And a lot of organizations are having to change, having to evolve quicker than the people, their systems and their processes can keep up with. And what we're here to talk to yours about today is how can leaders usher this change in a way by consolidating the people, having everyone on the bus, And really ensuring that the performance of the firm stays intact as we continue to move through challenging times. Hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed speaking to yours. Very humble. He's been in the executive coach game before it was even called executive coaching. It's really great to get the pearls of wisdom from yours online as well as offline where we've had some really interesting conversations enjoy the show again thank you for spending your time with us please do rate this podcast if you haven't already go to www.ultrahabits.co that's .co check out the website you're sure to learn some things as an executive athlete i know you're in the trenches your time poor but there's going to be a lot of information there via blogs via interviews that will help you maintain or get to where you're trying to go. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. Peace. Enjoy your week. Yours, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. We have connected for some time on email. Uh, we had a, a quick meet and greet not that long ago. Super, super excited to have you on the show, man. Welcome.
0: Thank you, RJ. I appreciate you having me. i looking forward to it very much.
1: Yeah. You know, I came across you somewhere on LinkedIn and like what caught my attention obviously is the endurance ultra running and all that history of yours, but this kind of really mixed bag in terms of your background. I saw that you went to the Australian Graduate School of Management to do your MBA. Uh, that's where I went. And I was thinking, how the hell has this man done so many things? So I thought that would be a good place to kick off the show. I did a bit of research and came up with some numbers. So 43 years as an ultra-endurance athlete, 21 months as a military peacekeeping commander, and that's after the age of 50. 20 years as an exec coach, seven years as an academic. You lived on four continents whilst raising two kids. How the hell have you done all this, man?
0: Well, it's humbling to uh, to hear you uh, um cite those numbers. So you you know, actually humility is one of the things I talk and write about. And in all humility, I am good at a few things. I'm nowhere am I outstanding. So I, I'm very, very broad. So I've I've done a lot of different things as you've obviously uh, uh, lined up. But I think, you know, I don't want to rehash unless you, you're listener interested in that, like my whole history. But one of the things I do apply is I look at my life in a pretty, I'm Swiss, by the way, in a very systematic way. So every three to five years, I assess what is it that I still want to do and achieve and experience maybe most importantly over the next three to five years. So that led me to a bunch of pivots as you just outlined. I was an academic first actually in Australia. I did my uh, uh, PhD at the ANU and then a postdoc at the Uni Melbourne and then I transitioned into business um, and then became uh, an executive coach uh, over uh, many years, as you've, as you've outlined. And the endurance sport has always been part of my life. Like that's been, I ran my first marathon with the 14, my first ultra with 18 and so forth. So that's just been a, a consistent theme throughout my life. And then uh, the peacekeeping is something that really came much later in life. And I, uh, I was approaching 50. I was uh, literally... Sounds a bit morbid, but I was going. What do I still want to do and experience? You know, the runway is endless. So, and I decided to go down that avenue, which was, by the way, not straightforward. It was uh, quite challenging, indeed.
1: Just a question: When you were here in Australia, so we know in Australia, the we have typically have a culture of kind of laying low, humility. We don't really um, have a culture of talking about ourselves. And I actually read a biography on Federer and. They were talking about the Swiss culture, being a culture where it's quite tamed, a lot of humility. Do you find correlations? Because as an American, I always found it hard when I came to Australia initially, right? As Americans, we like to kind of stand from a mountaintop and and we like to 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 get you know, we like to shout the message. So like was that a pretty easy transition for you when you came to Australia? You know, it actually was right. I mean, you're referring to
0: the tall poppy syndrome, right, in Australia. So uh, it was very easy to transition from Switzerland to Australia for the reason you just mentioned. Like Feder points it out in his biography, it's a very, you know, we don't have, we don't talk about the money in Switzerland. We have it. Is the joke, right? So it's literally, uh, um, it's it's downplaying things. What I found interesting on that topic in Australia is it's true in all aspects except in sports sports i found and and you know the scene much better than i do now but in sports people are not afraid to be the tall poppy but certainly academically and so forth but beyond what i also have to say here that's that cultural sort of you know myth or reality still exists but when you run your own business like when you do your own thing like you do and we have to you know promote ourselves we have to be out there and the australians have you know shifted that way over the last 20 years as well
1: in terms of your transition from like skiing and ultra marathons academics and executive coaching like what has been the the thread that's tied it all together like what is the correlating factors that you've been able to take into each space and leverage
0: so that's a that's a, a really Great question. I have to tell you, and I'll be very honest with it, with you here. After I did my MBA at the HSM, I went into into management consulting, you know, like a lot of people do, chasing the money, and I hated it. It was a terrible decision. I did it for all the wrong reasons. So then I had a good hard look and asked myself exactly that question: What's the threat? What are the things that I truly enjoy and all the things I do? And it's been and it continues to be helping others. To achieve their goals. Sounds a bit cheesy, but it's true. It was true as an academic, post-grad students. It was true as an athlete, mentoring younger younger athletes and as a as a coach. And it was certainly true in uh, consulting. So that's when I transitioned into uh, leadership development, coaching, and now speaking. And it was true in the peacekeeping missions as well. I really thrive and Love helping others to
1: go to the next level, see them grow. That's what drives me. It's interesting. I, I I have a lot in common with you in in many ways, although my experience is different, and I haven't um done the academic thing to the degree that you have. But I looked at you know ultra endurance running and the MBA and building businesses is what I call crucibles. They're kind of activities that are extremely hard, and they really shape you and help you transition not only as an individual but as a leader Uh, and I think the thread for me through all those different kind of forums is the long game right like you really have to be comfortable with the long game what's your view on that
0: I love that RJ I love that so I just read on LinkedIn I think over the weekend be impatient with action be patient with outcomes, right? And so, so the, the ability to, you know, it's true doing an ultra, it's true building a business, the ability to embrace the suck sometimes. Nice. Embrace the suck, like stay in the game and and be clear about be, that. You have to be relentless around action and then. You need to really well, no, you we all need to let go of the outcome. I often think of of business endeavors very similar to a an, an ultra. So we're when we're at the starting line of an ultra, then it doesn't matter anymore. We've done everything we can, and it doesn't matter anymore. Maybe our digestive system goes south, maybe hydration doesn't work out, whatever it is. We we cannot control it. And so um and talking about the long game too is, and I know you can relate to that. During ultras, there is the first twenty-four hours, then there's the first thirty-six, the first forty-eight, and they go, and how you feel goes up and down, and up and down. And we always know that if we're totally down, that it actually will get better again. Like if we've done it enough time, we'll actually come out of it. And so. Uh, so yeah, that what comes up for me when you talk about the long game, and so it's true in business too. It's like embracing the suck and just staying in it, and that doesn't mean we have to be naive or blind or not learn from you know what's being thrown at us and potentially pivot and change. But it is the staying power to 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 hang on and and you know keep going. And and the last piece I say around this is. If we want to build businesses, if we want to succeed as leaders, if we want to finish ultras, we have to enjoy the process of getting there. It can't be about the goal. Goals are nice and they can motivate us, but we have to, we I have to enjoy the process to get there.
1: Two things there. One, you talk about building a set of uh, illustrative experience that we can draw upon that we've done this shit before and we can get through it, right? So, like if you're, you know, a person that's done multiple ultras or, you know, I've had conversations with athletes that pivot into business and, you know, they're insecure, they're scared about like, who's going to want to hire him. And, uh, and for me, like, these people are gold because they have lived and breathed uncertainty, difficulty. They have the behavioral attributes to figure shit out. And to me, that's a competitive advantage. Like if they're acumen, you can develop that if they got the willingness and, and a bit of the know-how, they'll get there. But that ability for a human to draw on their own experience—I can't give that to you. You have to do. You have to pay the debt <laughs> to build that level of real confidence. Like you can't fake that, man. Like, and I think that's one thing that I think you touched upon really well. Um, that that's kind of what comes through these experiences so i want to talk about your your journey into exec coaching right so you're now in seattle and how did you initially get into executive coaching like what was that moment where you realized okay this is for me
0: i love that question RJ. that's really good that you asked that because it actually happened in australia so I was unhappy in my corporate management consulting job, as I was pointing out, that I was thinking about all the different things I, I might want to do, including potentially coaching. Now, remember, this is in 1999, 2000. So executive coaching was very much in its infancy. So I went to a workshop in Sydney, an in-person workshop. It was me and um, about 50 or 60 Other people, the majority, um, middle-aged, I want to say 95% females in the room who were interested in life coaching, a lot of them with psych backgrounds. And here I was, you know, like a 30-old type-A, gung-ho-like person, and so I totally stood out. And yet I went through that, now looking back, uber-cheesy coaching workshop, and I was hooked. I was hooked. It was life coaching. It wasn't my thing, but I was like, that's me. I
1: love that stuff.
0: I can thrive here. So that was, and I'm a very pragmatic person. I'm like Roger Federer, the typical Swiss there. So I don't have a lot of those Eureka moments, but that was one of them. And so that then led me to actually, you know, made a bold and one could argue a pretty stupid move, actually, in hindsight, to move continents, to start a new career, start a new relationship, all at the same time, and so I moved to Seattle and I started my, and I, I started to coach not knowing a single person. So it was, it's needless to say that the first three years were incredibly difficult. I started out as a career coach and then did small business coaching, but uh, I really bottom up, like grinding it, grinding it, grinding it. So there was no magic there. It was tough.
1: How did you then go about developing a framework? Like, did you just bump your head on a lot of shit and figure it out as you move? Like, what's the reality? Like, give us the reality on what, it, what it's truly like for exec coaches. I see.
0: I can use the S word here. That's nice to hear. So, look, so, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to take a bit of time to answer that actually, because what was true back then is not true now anymore. Back then, I had two masters, And the PhD, and I said, I'm not going to go get yet another like coaching degree. And and, you know, there weren't a lot of coaching degrees back then, anyway. I I'm just going to start doing it, and I'm going to learn as I go, and take you know courses and classes and certifications along the way. And so, literally, I had no framework. I mean, I. I understood what coaching was, what it wasn't, that it's not therapy, it's not consulting. I, you know, not mentoring, I learned all these different things. I read a lot, but I was very much self-taught the first two years. And then as I, you know, as we grow our businesses, you know, people always tell us, focus early on, know your niche. Well, I don't know my niche, and it evolves over time, right? And so so it did for me, and I transitioned into over over the next five to seven years into sole executive coaching. And so that's then when I started to, in earnest, take executive coaching classes. Marshall Goldsmith was an important teacher for me. Um, um, Frank Wagner, I did stuff uh, with uh, with Adam Grant, uh, different people around the place. And then, and then, you know, finally did get my ICF's coaching certification. But early on, it was just doing it and getting and and practicing and getting better and learning along the way. So that's, uh, that's how that happened.
1: And so you're focused on individuals or teams or both? So I, I do both. I did.
0: um, I do a a bunch of executive coaching, one-on-one coaching. um, And I have done a lot of peer CEO peer groups. This stitch is a a well-known competitor. I'm out there uh, where I, Coach teams, um, both like senior teams of companies, but also um, CEO peers. But I have to tell you, actually, I so I've really transitioned out of coaching over the last few years. I just came back from my last peacekeeping mission, and I'm now one hundred percent focused on speaking, keynote speaking. I do uh, I do very little coaching, some, but I don't advertise it. I don't sell it. it whatever comes in, I look at and then make a call. Cool. So, uh, So, yeah, but it was to answer your question, it's both individual and team coaching.
1: So uh, I want to talk about some of the frameworks because I think it's quite interesting. So there, you know, you have the framework then to now, right? And I think there was something really nicely articulated on your website. It says, it means saying goodbye to strength through intimidation and replacing it with strength through humility. It means trading the martini lunch for an organic plant-based meal for true warriors. It means swapping out burnout from work sprints with the endurance and consistency to produce long-term success. And it means unlocking the secrets to how, and I love this, J-Lo has been able to stay J-Lo even after all these years. What was the essence of that paragraph? Like walk us through what you mean
0: So the the then-to-now framework really is grounded in the idea that with all the changes that our world is going through, leadership in general has not actually kept up. So we're talking about the fast-moving, deeply messy, deeply interconnected world, you know, the FUCA world as it's well known. And yet, leadership to a large extent is still stuck in the top-down, command-control, very hierarchical way. Of of, uh, of of leading. And so what what I'm advocating for and I'm by no means the only one is a, you know is a much more humble approach. When I say a humble leadership approach, it's a relational view of the world. So the way to think about this is that we tackle the increased interconnectedness, the fast-moving relationships out there in the world, with deeper and more meaningful relationships, both with ourselves. number one as the leader, with our team members, number two, and with the organization at large, number three. And so, it's it's about it's not about being soft, but it's about developing those also well-known social skills like empathy, like listening, like empowering, um, and being a more humble leader. So that's the. The then-to-now framework is grounded in this notion that you know what worked back then does not work now and into the future.
1: So you're talking about the anecdote to a transactional world is building more depth where it matters. You're
0: exactly right. Yeah, that's well said.
1: You know, I've been a leader in, in, in a business, but generally focused on bringing in revenue. And I've recently made a transition to the C-suite where... I'm now kind of responsible for more people. And one of the things I experience yours is a lot of the people in my environment are continue it was it's probably always been this way but I'm probably noticing it more now. A lot of what I see is individuals jockeying for position. Like and I'm thinking like there's a lot of wasted energy on people with their own fears and insecurities and thinking they need to jockey to kind of gain favor position. And I'm just watching the organization and thinking, wow, there's a lot of complexity in human interaction. (laughs) And how the hell do I set everyone's mind at ease to get everyone understanding that they're key, they're important, in building an interconnected team where we're focused on the result and not about managing optics or people managing like how do you and i know it's a big question but like as a leader like how do you start to shift that environment from one where people are concerned about i guess it's a psychological safety piece i, I don't know
0: well i think well i think that's part of it and obviously i know you know nothing about the culture in your organization but Two things come to mind here. And the, the second one you just mentioned. Um, a lot of what happens in organizations, and you know this, is modeled from the top. And um, it's modeled from the top. So if I, as a as a C-level executive, if I show appropriate vulnerability, if I talk about what I'm working on, if I talk about my weaknesses, if I by the way, we can talk about my coaching process. As part of my coaching process, the client, the boss, stands up in front of his or her people and openly talks about the coaching goal that he or she is pursuing. Implicitly, then acknowledging what they're what they suck at and what they need to get better. So the um, so if we if we model psychological safety, being able to be vulnerable, talking about weaknesses then that is one way we can potentially address what you're describing. The second piece that comes to mind is that it is our responsibility as leaders to, you know, I call turn our teams into leadership factories, meaning, you know, it is my my goal with my team to produce the next generation of leaders. And what that means is that I intimately know what each of their career paths look like. So I, 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 And they know that I know. So what that does is it does a lot of different things, but it does including giving people peace of mind that the boss actually knows you know, what I'm capable of and what my next you know, step could be or would be. And so by, by having these you know, regular career path meetings with our employees, we can hopefully prevent some of that, you know,
1: needless chopping for position you're, you're describing about. One of the things you talk about is radical transparency. Yeah. H- how does that tie into what you're talking about now?
0: Well, so radical transparency ties into the first piece I talked about. You know, we don't need to bury our soul open as, as, as leaders. But we and I'm a strong believer in that and all the research shows that we need to with radical transparency, share. And if the pandemic, by the way, has taught us anything, it's how powerful it is as leaders when they see we have kids at home too, and the dog is running around, and you know, we have all these different things we need to manage. Like the the, the, the days, and I know there's plenty of leaders still out there, the days of the macho leader knows it all, has it all figured out are over. And so um um and so. Radical transparency around my own challenges. You know, I have a personal life too, you know, whatever, whatever. So that's number one. Number two around radical transparency is, you know, if we truly want our team members to be empowered to make fast, smart decisions at the front lines, they need to know more. They need to know more about our intentions as leaders, our our goal. And the only way they'll know more is if we share more. If we share as leaders more with radical transparency. What's the strategy? What's the goal? What's the, what's the priority this quarter? Everybody needs to like top, like everybody needs to just rattle off the one or two priorities we all have in this team for the next quarter. So that's what I mean um, about the personal transparency and then transparency around business
1: goals and strategy. No, that's great. How you talk about being tough on results, but tender on people. Now that is tricky. Do we how do we do that, yours? How do we do that?
0: It goes something like this. RJ, you know I love you, and this is not good enough. (laughs) So and so the idea is that um, and by the way, sometimes the most loving thing I can do to you, RJ, is I can let you go. That's the most loving thing I can do to you. Okay, and so. I, so I know I might turn the things on, on their head a little bit, but the idea is that um, we, we must build, and we don't do enough of that as business leaders, deep, meaningful, personal, trusting relationships with our team members. Like, And everybody talks about that. It's a cliche, but that's what it is. The only way we can truly trust and empower our team members is if we know them on on a personal level and not just on a professional level, so that's the, the personal the, the personal piece, the tender on people. and I can still be incredibly tough on, on on results. and I can hold my people accountable to the highest levels, but they know that I value them as a human being, and I might still
1: let them go yeah that's a really good uh, so in your experience with all the leaders that you've seen or come across or worked with do the best leaders or sorry that's probably the wrong way of asking the question do most leaders that you come across develop personal relationships with their people or do they try to keep guardrails up like what's the generalization there um
0: i well that's a I think it's interesting, right after we hang up, I actually talked to a client who I one of the few I still coach, and she is actually having too many guardrails up, which just did a 360 and that came back. Like actually her people said it would go a long way if she would be a bit more vulnerable if she would talk about herself a bit more. So I think, and by the way, we can you know it's probably not appropriate for two guys to get into this, but for women it's even harder. This whole business around vulnerability, um, because there's so many stereotypes out there. But I, I would say, as a general rule, I see a shifting towards realizing the importance of deepening personal relationships, relationships with our people. From the leaders I come across with, but there's still a long way to go, no doubt. And we all get—you said, you know—you're you're responsible for revenue. It sounds like, right? And you That can keep you busy sixty hours a week. You don't have bloody time to, you know, build relationships. I'm overstating the point, but we're so caught up in in our business objectives that we often do not make the building of relationships enough of a priority. So to answer your long way of answering your question, but not enough is done. It's still too many guardrails up. I
1: think what ends up happening is there's this confirmation bias that occurs when leaders dip their toe with vulnerability with their people and they feel they got burned. Right. And they're like seeds because, and, and, it, you know, like it, and then they kind of throw the baby out with a bath water. Right. Like I think we just need to have enough real vulnerabilities, leaders and emotional awareness to understand that if we lead in with vulnerability, things may still happen. Like people may, still push back and we need to still maintain that level of vulnerability. That's the whole thing about being vulnerable. It's not situational vulnerability. It's like you're going to go in with vulnerability and then having the skill to still have that velvet glove to say, hey, you're, you know what, we're buddies, but I'm still going to kick your ass, right? Like if, if you need it, right? Like I think that's the reality.
0: You know, essentially, actually, I want to point like we're not buddies. Actually, we're not. I'm your boss. We're not bodies. It's actually important, I think. So, uh, but uh, but I think you're absolutely you're you're absolutely correct um, that that's the fear that we get burned. But I have to tell you, I haven't seen that happen very often. Uh, the people I I mean, I I coach, I see it you know firsthand. There, vulnerability again. It just means look look. Your people know your weaknesses anyway. They know what you suck at because they yeah. they totally bloody know it already. So you standing up there and saying, "Hey, you know what? I am not great at delegating, or whatever. I am not great at follow through. You know, but sometimes emails don't get responded to. That's 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 not good. I get it. Okay. So they know our um, weaknesses anyway. Us verbalizing it doesn't you know change that. And so, but it does then communicate to my team members, huh, the boss has acknowledged that he or she is not great at that, and he or she's is working on it. Like, they, they're taking steps to improve it. So maybe I should look at something that I could improve as well. And so it's, it's this, you know, that positive snowball effect from, from the top. So when I say, I want to just be clear, when I say vulnerability, I really don't mean be open your soul. It just could start with talking about what my weaknesses are, what I'm working on, what I want to get better
1: at. So we're going to start to land the plane here, yours, but I, I, I really, first of all, want to thank you for coming on the show, but I want to move towards, um, habituation. So we always like to kind of wrap up the show around how our audience can take some of the insights from our guests and habituate them into their own lives. So a leader, uh, is listening to this conversation and they want to start to build habits and habituate, um, let's say processes around vulnerability or becoming more of an open leader, what's the immediate things they can do, particularly if their team's not used to that and may come at a shock. Like how does someone go from, you know, listening to this interview and having a re- eureka moment, realizing, oh shit, I need to implement some of this stuff to actually doing it and then building some kind of habituation around that.
0: So specifically around the point of vulnerability for a leader, I w- let's start very small and so we can actually sustain the momentum. So number one, do you have regular one-on-ones with your team members? Number one. If you don't, at least every two weeks, one-on-one, 30 minutes with your team members. Then during that one-on-one, do exactly what I just talked about. Share, not in front of the whole team, because that could be scary. Share with each member individually, hey, I'm working on getting better at delegating. And I, I know that's not something I'm great at. And I want you to give me some feedback in two weeks when we meet again around how I've been doing. Simply do that, not in a team meeting one-on-one, and keep doing that over the course of a few months and see what happens. See what happens to you, see what happens to your team members, see what happens to the quality of the conversation on your team around how we address the things that we want to get better at.
1: One of the things that I'm going to take away from this conversation is, and I know this instinctively, but it's very easy to forget, in the moment, like I need to be the one to lead with the behaviors that I want to see in others, right? Like I can't sit around waiting for others to exhibit it. And I just got to lean in, right?
0: And you know what? As a leader, we're always on stage. We're always on stage. People watch every single thing. And it's not pretty, it's not fun, but it's the reality. They watch what we do what we don't do what we say what we don't say we're always on stage so i think you're absolutely right on you need to display the behavior we want to see our team members displaying ourselves there's no more powerful way than that and can i add one more thing um so the in terms of tangible takeaways the people like me come in and we Give you all these things to do and address, and you know more vulnerability, and ask for um, feedback on on your uh, weaknesses. If there if there's one thing I've learned over the course of my career, it's the value of focus. And I know you and I had an exchange about this on LinkedIn. The value of focus. If you take on something new, whatever it might be, ask yourself, what am I not doing instead? I truly believe that we don't achieve what we want to achieve because we're spreading ourselves too thinly across too many priorities. I'm sorry if I open up a whole new. I yeah, know you're going to. No, 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 no. That, that's a a really
1: good one. That's 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 a, a, a
0: really good one. and and I am guilty of it for sure. I mean, I I constantly every month I have it right there, my whiteboard where I have to like cross stuff off and I don't do this this month because I want to focus on these three things.
1: Uh, A good example of that was yesterday. I went for, I'm an intense period of work right now. Uh, I'm kind of in this accelerated learning piece right now. And yesterday I went for a run in the morning that was far too long. And I went to work and I was just shattered, right? Like I, I just... I was like, oh. and it was just, I just knew the day I was off and it was like, and that's why per that conversation we had on LinkedIn, like I got to manage that beast, right? Because if I start getting on my feet and want to run, I'll just, it'll take over everything.
0: You know, I loved what you actually responded there. You know, you know yourself so well that, you know, well, with the exception of yesterday morning, about whatever, you know yourself that you can't actually even tap into that because then it's just going to take over everything right so you know that for, and you know it's not true for everybody but for you and certainly plenty of my colleagues it's true so uh so having that that self-awareness that
1: that you know know these self is so valuable um so. it is the one know thyself so yours I really again just thank you for coming on ultra habits you're definitely our people uh, we talk about the executive athlete. Um, and you represent all pillars of things that I find very important for me. I live a life based on, um, you know, mind, body, spirit, and I try to educate myself in all of those forums. And you have a really good example of of that. Like you kind of have tapped into all those different forms that I'm kind of moving into, whether it's you know the learning process, um, the ultra endurance, multiple sports and different endeavors you've done and, and the executive stuff you've done like you're really a powerful influence i think for someone like myself and the ultra habits community so where can our folks learn more about you do you have a website or something that we can visit
0: yeah so uh, well first of all thank you RJ, for having me i loved it it's so much fun uh, and i hope we stay we stay in touch so yeah it's my website it's uh, um urs urs koenig K O E N I G dot com. That's the best way to learn about me. And then, of course, on social all over the place as well.
1: Yeah. We'll have the the links up in the show notes, anyways. Yeah. So people will be able to find you. Great.
0: Excellent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Yours. Well, thank you so much for your time. You have a great evening there. Yeah. Thanks, Ajay.